So let's, let's stand, and I'll read the chapter to you so that it's fresh in your mind. How many of you guys have been reading ahead? A few of you, yeah. Wow. It's record numbers, I think. There's like five people. That's pretty good. Pretty good. <clears throat> All right, well, as I read, as always, not that you're not good listeners, but please pay attention to the language. It says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, who shall stand as a banner to the people. For the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left from Assyria and Egypt, from Pathros and Cush, from Elam and Shinar, from Hamath and the islands of the sea. He will set up a banner for the nations and will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Also, the envy of Ephraim shall depart and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah and Judah shall not harass Ephraim, but they shall fly down upon the shoulder of the Philistines toward the west. Together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall lay their hand on Edom and Moab and the people of Ammon shall obey them. The Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt. With his mighty wind, he will shake his fists over the river and strike it in the seven streams and make men cross over dry shod. There will be a highway for the remnant of his people who will be left from Assyria as it was for Israel in the day that he came up from the land of Egypt. Well, Father, thank you for your word. And as we're seeing here, thank you for, Lord, your prophetic promise that in the days to come, uh, this is going to materialize. It'll happen by your hand, as you've said early, the Lord of hosts will perform this. And so, Lord, with great anticipation, 
Uh, we look forward to all of it, Lord, especially, uh, I think, verse 9. And so encourage us by your word tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. There's a little bit there, right? Enough to cover in a night, I suppose. Uh, if we ever plan on getting through Isaiah, we're going to have to get through chapters at a time, I think. So 60 chapters could take a long time. There's, there's more than 60, isn't there? 66, yeah, like 66 books of the Bible. So again, look at verse 1 and 2. We've done one, there shall come forth... So pay attention to that. There shall come forth from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. There shall come forth. So the entire chapter is built upon the coming of this one particular individual, as we've said, who is called the rod, the, the branch or stem, and also, as we said in verse 10, the root. So he's both the root and the branch. Very interesting. So you can't lose sight of that fact, the fact of his coming, uh, as you go through the text, uh, or you'll just kind of wander all over the place. So the whole prophecy has everything to do with what is going to happen on planet Earth when this person comes. Now understand that the Old Testament prophets, uh, in speaking of, of course, Christ, uh, his coming, they never make a distinction between the first and the second comings. They never say, this will happen in the first coming of Christ, this will happen in the second coming. It just says, when he comes, when they talk about his coming, they just tell us that. It's when we get to the New Testament that we learn that there's actually two different advents, okay? And there actually has to be. Uh, in fact, some of the ancient uh, Talmuds from Babylon, uh, in looking at all of the Old Testament, the, those scholars actually said, hold on a second. Either there's two messiahs or there's two different advents. So some people were looking very carefully and said, if he does this, he can't do this. If he dies... He can't reign victoriously, at least not at the same time in the same place. So they said there's either two different messiahs or there's two different advents. You get it? So they were pretty sharp, okay? Pretty sharp guys. So they only predicted, the Old Testament prophets, who he is and what he would do. This particular chapter really makes no reference to what we know about Christ in his first coming. None of that. Describes him, of course, as the same person, but nothing of his first coming is mentioned. His first coming, as we know, was a mission of suffering, death, resurrection, okay, to secure the redemption of all who would trust in him. But his second coming will be, as we learn in this, this chapter, it's going to be a mission of judgment and conquest by which he subdues his enemies and then ushers in a time of peace and prosperity on the earth. So let's look at verse 2. This root of Jesse, the Messiah will be empowered 
by the Holy Spirit to exercise, to administer wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, and it says the fear of the Lord. Well, the question is, for what reason would the Holy Spirit endow the Messiah with these particular virtues? To what end? It says his delight is in the fear of the Lord. And then it goes into it. He shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide for the hearing of the, uh, by the hearing of the ears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity or decide with equity for the meek of the earth and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins and faithfulness the belt of his waist. So Messiah, when he comes and second coming, he didn't slay anybody in his first coming, right? Or is it just me? Okay, yeah, he didn't slay anybody. So the Messiah for the second advent, his second coming, he's going to be endowed with these virtues that he might judge, that he might judge rightly, that he might decide with true equity for the meek, that he might be qualified as the one to strike the earth, as he might be the righteous one who slays the wicked. So there's really two things here. There's judge and there's executioner. Really? Isn't that what it says? He will judge, he will decide, and he will execute. He is the only one who is truly worthy and qualified to do this. And I believe it's simply for one reason. It's because his delight is in the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord. No human jury, no magistrate or judge has the qualifications to do what Jesus will do. Not especially on any, on any eternally. He alone remains entirely faithful to justice and equity. And of course, not as the world is currently defining equity. We used to say equality, right? Equality by the law. Now we've said the word equity, which means the distribution of wealth. That's not what this text means, okay? It has nothing to do with that. All of the words here are rooted in the nature of God, so it's as truth as righteousness really is, okay? <clears throat> and then based on the verdict of his judgment, Christ will execute justice in the earth, and he has to do it by slaying the wicked, verse 4, by which he will demonstrate the truth of verse 5, that he is righteous and that he is faithful. Righteous and faithful. How would you like a judge like that? And also, I know everybody these days were frustrated with judges because judges are here answer to a higher authority, right? I think the police right now are the most frustrated with our judges, okay? Says the, the resident police officer. Yeah. 
But Christ will administer eternal justice as it's rooted in the nature of God. There is no authority higher than himself. Okay. Just this morning, you, you may have seen that it was announced that the Parkland shooter that murdered 17 people on February 14th, 2018, the jury rejected the death penalty for him. It's insane. In Genesis 9-6, God makes it very clear that murderers should be executed. So by rejecting the death penalty for someone who has murdered people who are created in the image of God, that is deeply offensive to God. They're created in his image, okay? It's not an act of mercy to set aside the death penalty for this person. It's just a complete violation of justice. It's a disregard for what is most sacred in this world, which is the image of God, okay? It communicates that the killer has greater value in our society than the victims. I don't know if you read any of the comments from the parents. Even uh, the governor DeSantis came out and said, this is why we have the death penalty. It's very sad. When Christ returns to judge the earth, there won't be partial justice for the wicked. There will be perfect justice. Perfect justice. As you know, you remember the, the very interesting dialogue between Abraham and the Lord just as the Lord was planning to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham asks this very interesting question. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? And he did. He did. That's right. And in, in, in that story, we know that he made a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. So now, what will things be like on the earth after he has so thoroughly purged the earth of wickedness? Then what? It says, this is very interesting, and it's quoted elsewhere in the prophets, the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. How many guys have witnessed that? Things going to change. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together. They'll be buddies. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's exciting. What you find here is a, at least a partial reversal of the curse. You remember in Genesis, God had given vegetation as the food for everything. For everything. And uh, it's interesting that some of the, uh, uh, the T-Rex, Tyrannosaurus Rex, uh, jaws that they've found uh, is their jaws are filled with vegetation. 
and it's not because they were eating salad with their kill. Uh, it, apparently, they were eating vegetation. Uh, what does a fruit bat eat? I mean, it's pretty self-evident. It's like where, you know, who's buried in Grant's tomb kind of thing. How long was the Hundred Year War? But if you look at the jaw of a fruit bat, what does it look like? Like a fox. There's no molars. It's all, it's fangs. It's canine looking. And it eats vegetation. What about a panda bear? What about a koala bear? Yeah, and they have canines. So if you just look at the, the teeth, it looks like a meat eater, but they are vegetarian. Interesting, huh? Before the fall, everything was vegetarian. At this particular time, there will be a partial removal of the curse. And as it says here, uh, back here someplace, that lion shall eat straw like an ox. I'm not sure they should translate that straw. Uh, coming from ranch country, we don't feed animals straw. Uh, we feed them hay. Straw has no um, nutritional value in it. Hey, scholars, you know what do you do with them. So, but here uh, in the text, both the animal kingdom and, of course, the kingdom of men will be at peace with one another. That'll be very, very interesting. And you see there the animals that are paired up. It's, it's the domestic animal with its appropriate predator. So you have predator and prey, and they're in harmony with each other. They dwell together. They pose no danger to the child or the nursing infant. The child, if he is to put his hand in the cobra's den, he's, the parents should not panic, in other words. Okay? Should not panic. So we'll get back a little bit to the Edenic state. People will still be sinners, but that part of the curse will remain, but some of it will be withdrawn from the earth at that time. <clears throat> Excuse me. And at that time, uh, as the text says, the whole earth is going to be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. Now it's not, you know, uh, just by information, but this is intimate knowledge. This is relational knowledge. People are going to know the Lord. Okay? It takes us back to Isaiah 2, uh, verses 2 through 4, which says that all the nations of the world will flow to the mountain of the Lord, which is Jerusalem, where they will be taught his ways. And the nations of the world, it says, will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. So the instruments of war will be transformed into the tools of agriculture. The nations, it says, will cease to go to war and they will stop learning warcraft. Right? When we're not at war, what are our service members doing? They're training for war. Okay? Well, there won't be war and no one will be training for war at this time. Okay? Christ will usher in a time of global peace. And in that day, there shall be a root not a branch, but a root of Jesse, who shall stand as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. Now, keep in mind, 
in verse 1, it was, this person is coming. And here now it says, and in that day, in the day, we're still considering the context and the consequences of the second advent of Christ. Coming, the consequences, both the root and the rod. And here it says that the Gentiles will seek him. So when Christ returns, his sole occupation will not be with ethnic Israel. Okay, he will stand as a banner even for the Gentiles who seek him. After his return, uh, Gentiles will continue to trust in Christ for salvation. All right? Uh, if you <clears throat> hold to uh, what is called the dispensational view of the end times, uh, at this time, you can exclude Gentiles. Um, I'm not a, a dispensationalist, um, so I don't accept that aspect at all. Uh, the, I, ex I accept what the text says, and what does it say about Gentiles? They'll seek him. Yeah. Yeah. But at his second advent is when he's going to fulfill promises to ethnic Israel as well. Let's look at it says, it shall come to pass in that day, again, in that day, that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left from Assyria and Egypt, from Pathros and Cush, from Elam and Shinar, from Hamath and the islands of the sea. He will set up a banner for the nations and will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. So first, notice in the text here, there's a clear difference between Gentiles who will seek him and the Jews, the Israelites, that he will restore to the land. It's a clear distinction, right? Yeah. Second is the repeat of the land promise that will be fulfilled following a second diaspora. When did the first diaspora occur? With the northern kingdom. When did that happen? Diaspora, I mean the scattering of the Jews. It happened by the Assyrians, right? Shortly after the time of Isaiah. And then when was the southern kingdom dispersed? Through the Babylonians. That's right. Now, both were regathered to the land after King Cyrus liberated all the nations. That was during the time of, of Ezra and Nehemiah. But our text, we're talking about a second time that the nation will be regathered to the land, verse 11, which requires that they would have been dispersed, right? Okay. Yeah, the second diaspora occurred... When? 70 AD. When Titus and the Roman legions came against Israel because of the zealots, they destroyed many towns in Israel, but ultimately Jerusalem, and then they destroyed the temple. Now, that particular diaspora scattered the Jews every direction, unlike the diaspora which scattered the Jews to the east, the, the first one. When Christ returns, he will recover ethnic Israelis from every direction of the compass, 
from every corner of the earth, just as the passage indicates. We have Hamath to the north, Egypt and Cush to the south, Assyria, Elam, and Babylon to the east, and the islands of the sea to the west. Every direction that they have been scattered, <clears throat> they will be brought back. How many of you guys have been to Israel? A couple of you. Did you guys uh, take the effort to, when you met Israelis, to ask them where they were from? So I didn't, I wasn't on a tour. Um, I was staying in the, a little hostel in Netanya, and um, I was traveling with the, the locals, and so I spent all my time there with the, the, the Israelis. And from the very beginning, I was asking them where they had, had immigrated from. They say Aliyah, which means to go up. Everything is up when it comes to Jerusalem. And <clears throat> I met Jews from almost every country in South America. I met Jews from every country in Europe. I met Jews from China, the Philippines, India, of course, all over the United States, Canada. I met Jews from Iraq, Iran, all uh, Muslim-majority countries. I met Jews from all over Africa. I, I, I should have dug up the number uh, as I was documenting where I met all of these Jews. Some of them are sabras, which means cactus of the people, the natives that were born there. Sabras are prickly on the outside and soft on the inside. So they're prickly when you first meet them. But then as you engage, they're warm. So you have to take your time. But so anyway, um, all over the place, all over the world. According to God's promise, ethnic Israel from all over the place will be restored to the land. Now, some people believe that this occurred on May 14th, 1948, when Israel regained its sovereignty as a nation. Now, I believe that to be a fulfillment of a prophecy, but not the fulfillment of this prophecy. Because this one is said to be in the day when Christ returns. So whatever happened in 48, that may be the fulfillment of something in Ezekiel. But it's not what Isaiah is talking about. Jesus did not return in 1948, right? Okay, just checking. Let's look real quick for a, a parallel of this in Matthew 24, verse 29 through 21. Jesus says that immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then... The sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he, that's Christ, will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So following this period of great tribulation, as Jesus calls it in verse 21. The Son of Man is going to come on the clouds. Of course, he's on his way to planet Earth. Uh, he's coming with power. You're going to need that if you're going to slay the wicked and glory. And then he says he will dispatch his angels to gather his elect. From where? 
from everywhere on planet Earth. That's right. Who are the elect? Well, the immediate context points to the Jews. It talks about those who dwell in Judah, verse 16, those who are subject to the Sabbath, verse 20. It's the Jews. It's at Jesus' second coming that he regathers ethnic Israel back to the land. Now, currently, only about half of the earth's population of Jews live in Israel. Not when he comes back. They will be ushered back to the land. Eventually, all believing Jews will be in Israel. But there's, no, there's more. Not only will they be back in the land, but they will be united with each other. Okay? Verse 13, also the envy of Ephraim shall depart, and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. Does that sound like siblings? <laughs> they are. <laughs> yeah, the two divided kingdoms will be united. Now, Ezekiel 37, verse 15 through 28, also predicts the regathering of Judah and Israel to the land of their fathers. But in Ezekiel's prophecy, it's communicated very clearly that not only will they be unified in the land, they're going to have one king that rules over them. I got a pretty good idea who that is. Yeah. And the text says that with their king and the united nation of Israel, they will dwell there forever. Dwell there forever. And once in the land, they will subdue all their enemies. Verse 14, but they shall fly down upon the shoulder of the Philistines toward the west. Together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall lay their hand on Edom and Moab, and the people of Ammon shall obey them. It's going to be nice for them. The Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt with his mighty wind. He will shake his fist over the river and strike it in the seven streams and make men cross over dry shod. There will be a highway for the remnant of his people who will be left from Assyria as it was for Israel in the day that he came up from the land of Egypt. So just as God removed all of the barriers for the children of Israel when they left Egypt the first time, he will do so again when he comes so that nothing hinders his people from returning to the land at that time. As we saw in verse 11, his people will come from all directions, not just Egypt and Assyria. It's enough to mention the two nations without being redundant and repeating all of them from verse 11. So this second advent of Messiah in our chapter here will usher in his righteous judgment. Verse 4. You know, that is one of the things that I look forward to the most. Um, if you guys are keeping up on what multiple states are allowing and uh, their hospitals to, to be doing with children as far as uh, transitional drugs, surgeries, puberty blockers, and things like that. As young as five years old, um, I watched an interview <clears throat> of a guy that was 
um, had brought a scenario. It was just a bogus uh, kind of question. And he was asking people on the streets uh, about what they thought about this five-year-old that believed that he was a girl or, or the other way around, I can't remember, but what they thought that the law should allow this five-year-old to do. And passerbys were in agreement that they should protect this five-year-old by allowing him to undergo surgery, to s start drugs. And there are hospitals doing it. There are doctors behind it. Um, I think it's the uh, med medical school from Minnesota. Um, they had a, the, the class coming in had to give their oath. And these are our, our, our doctors of the future that are denying uh, binary boundaries and sexuality. It's a part of their, their medical oath. I mean, what will our nation reap in the next 10, 15, 20 years? So when I look at <clears throat> the, the anticipation of Christ's coming in judgment, um, I look forward to it. I look forward to it. Also here it says that his defense of the poor and the meek, verse 4, um, it's going to be wonderful. The vanquishing of the wicked, verse 4. Peace among all kingdoms, both the kingdom of men and the kingdom of beasts, verse 6 through 8. He will personally bring an end to war, verse 9. If you want to know what that looks like, just read Isaiah 63. We will get there. But you're allowed to spoil it for yourself. And in, you know, beginning in Genesis chapter 12, and then 15, 17, 22, and so on with Abraham, and then to Isaac and Jacob, and to the nation of Israel, there's what we call the land promises. This expectation of God fulfilling the land promises to ethnic Israel. Verse 11 through 12, uh, it's all repeated here again, verses 15 and 16. And then uh, as the, the prophets speak about many times the Messiah ushering in a time of peace. Well, the earth can't be at peace if it's at war. And Israel can't experience peace and prosperity if it's at war. And so not only will the nations of the earth be subdued, but the, the enemies of, of Israel will be in subje subjection. Verse 14. Now, I think the most stunning char characteristic of his rule will be what is described in verse 9. I love the way that it's, it's said. It says, They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, just as the waters cover the sea. When all know the Lord, all will be well. Jeremiah spoke of the same thing. And this in Jeremiah 31 is in the, the context of the prophecy of the new covenant. The new covenant it says, No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. How different the world will be 
under the direct rule of Messiah. As John said, even so, come Lord Jesus. Maranatha. All right, go ahead and stand up and we'll pray. If you have questions about the study tonight, I'll be here afterwards. Also, um, chapter 12 uh, is Isaiah's hymn of praise of what is promised in chapter 11. So you can praise God not just for what he's done. You can praise God for what he will do. Amen? Because all of his promises in Christ Jesus are yes and amen. Let's pray. Well, Lord Jesus, I, I'm so grateful, Lord, of course, for what you have done at, at Calvary. Lord, doing for us what we, we did not deserve. It is all by your grace. I thank you that you have continued to redeem a people for yourself. And Lord, one day you're going to return exactly as you promised. And there will be no prophecy of Scripture that is left undone. You will fulfill everything exactly as the prophets foretold. And when you're done, there will be peace and righteousness in the earth. And eventually, the complete overthrow of the curse, not just out there, but in us. And we will be able to worship you truly in spirit and in truth without the contamination of our flesh. So much to look forward to. Lord, we thank you for that. We worship you for it. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.